Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and today I wanted to continue with our discussion on the three angels' messages, particularly on the first angel's message. And just to bring it up uh, again one more time, as we see the censorship and everything like that increase, and YouTube and Facebook and these other social media outlets that are using really, I hate to use the term, but Orwellian, I guess, uh, tactics of, of censorship. Anybody who disagrees with the official position of the CDC and the World Health Organization is automatically censored for misinformation, even if you have legitimate doctors and things like that. But anyway, so that's, that's why we're doing this discussion, because I figured if we're going to get censored, as we did recently with our vaccine episode that we did here a couple weeks ago, which if you're still interested in hearing that, you can you can find it on our website at truthtriumphantministries.org. And then you just go into the sermons uh, tab and it's it's Truth Triumphant Radios underneath that tab. And you can check it out there, but you can also check it out. Uh, I believe it's still up on Spotify um, and Apple and Google. I believe it's still up on the podcasts, but it was taken down from YouTube specifically. So if, as I said, if 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 we're going to be censored and, and we're going to have things taken down, I'd rather I'd rather preach the message that God has given to the world as the last day message, and that is the three angels' messages. And what are they? Well, first off, we started looking at the everlasting gospel and that's the entire message of the old testament and the new testament combined it has everything in there from righteousness by faith up to the state of the dead and to sanctification there's just everything that the whole sanctuary doctrine sabbath the the law of god everything goes into that everlasting gospel that's the full gospel not only the 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 fact that you you can be forgiven the fact that you can through the strength of God alone come to repentance come to faith because we don't have these things on our own but also that you can have power to overcome those sins and you are expected to do that God gives you a power he expects you to use it so that's the full gospel it's it's that you don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore and then we looked at verse 7, which says, uh, saying with a loud voice, fear God. That's another pointing back to the commandments and give glory to him. And that is bearing fruit and, and having diet as well as praise. Of course, these things mean in the generic sense, you know, fear God as in fear him, uh, you know, tremble before him um, in the sense of fear him who has the power to cast body and soul into hell, as, as the Bible says. And give glory to him in the sense of praising and honoring him. Of course it means those things. But when we look at the Bible, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 28 that we are to study the Bible through line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And when we look at those terms, fear God and give glory to him, they tell us some other aspects on 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 what it actually means to fear. What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to give glory to him? And of course, that means diet. That means bearing fruit, 
having an evangelistic focus, not just, just keeping the, the beautiful treasure that we have in our hearts to ourselves, but being witnesses and lights in the world. That's what we are called to do. And, and what a time that we're living in right now. Does the world need true light from God at this time? Absolutely. I was just talking with uh, Pastor Bill Hughes this week about the, some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, we just recently, he wrote a book and I edited it. Um, so coming out with a new book and one of the publishers that he's been using for the past 25 years is refusing to publish his book for reasons that we they're not really telling us they're not really explaining to us just never seen stuff like this happen before where this the censorship and the 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 totalitarian i mean mindset of the of, of the leaders of not just the leaders in in the senate and the leaders in big government but the leaders even in small government we see mayors going against their governors and things like that like in wisconsin and even here in florida we have uh, Mayor of Orange County, uh, Jerry Demings, who's trying to go against some of the things that Ron DeSantis has put into play on uh, him wanting to fine people for not wearing masks. And, and DeSantis completely said, no, you will not you will not collect any of those fines. So, I mean, just just the way things have been going, it's just insane. And when I was talking with Pastor Hughes about it. I said, you know, we've studied these things for years and him a lot longer than I have. But you study these things and you study about the United States and the role of the United States. And we know that that America falls eventually. Uh, America is that second beast in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, the beast from the land that has the horns of a lamb. But then it speaks as a dragon, so it appears to be Christ-like, but when it actually speaks, it reveals itself to be devilish. And this it's this power that forces the entire world to accept the mark of the beast and worship the beast. It all starts here in America. Now, we've known that for years. Many of you listening have known that for years. But one thing, and I was talking to him about this, that I never really considered was how hard it would actually be to watch it happen, to, to watch America implode, to watch it fall, and to think that, wow, you know, I have a young, I have a young child. And to think that he's not going to grow up in the same America, not by a long shot, that, that even I grew up in, which was not the same America that even people who are a little older grew up in, as far as liberties versus regulations and red tape and bureaucracy and all that stuff. So it's just interesting. And, and any, any person can, who, who's, a, who's a, a patriot can tell you you know, there's been times when I know of people, they, they said that they've they've been so angry just to see it all play out, so angry with everything. And I think the temptation is, and I think this is what the devil is trying to do, I absolutely believe 
that this is what the devil is trying to do. He's trying to make the left push so hard that they will they will be just have a bitter taste. Everybody's going to have a really bitter taste in their mouth about them until the point of we have the French the, the scenes of the French Revolution being repeated here in the United States and we have an alt right movement come out come about. And I I think I think we need to keep that in mind that the Adventist view of of the world, if you study, you know, the Jesuits and what they do in history and what they've done in history and how they've taken down countries in the past, they don't have any horses in the race that are not their horses. They're, they only have controlled opposition. They only have the Hegelian dialectic. And I think, I think the temptation for many of us is to look at people who are raising up a standard and raising up a shout against this alt-left movement and thinking that some of these people are the good guys. And, and I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I'm not saying don't be supportive of the individuals so long as they're not being deceptive, but I, I just... The Adventist view, the Adventist understanding of this, the Adventist lens in all of this, is that there's a Hegelian dialectic going on. There is a, a thesis and there's an antithesis. And you, you read about that in the Jesuit oath, that there will be Jesuits that will curse the Pope. There will be Jesuits, you know, your brother Jesuit, which is on the other side, working against you, supposedly. But in actuality, they're both working towards the same goal. And I, and I absolutely believe a lot of people, I think, have started to think, wow, you know, the, this stuff, this, all this Sunday law stuff, it could come in from the left. And it very well could. It very well could. It easily could. But the left, by and large, is very anti-religious in many ways. I mean, even in California, they, they want to pass, the, they actually did pass this new curriculum program where they're going to have students this learning about pagan deities in the sense of, of how Christianity destroyed these religions, what they call deicide. It's just, it's, it's insane. It's very anti-Christian movement is what the left is. But when you read the spirit of prophecy and when you read the Bible, especially in, in, in Revelation, you see that it's a religious movement at the end of time that brings about like the supreme tyranny which God focuses on. So I think that's the temptation for many of us that we need to be weary of and make sure that we are, are being uh, watching, watching the avenues to our soul into our mind, into our hearts, because there's a deception out there lurking, and it, it's coming. And there's there's this there's this feeling that oh, if somebody over here is on the right and they're standing up against this, that means they're the good guy, and I could tr put my full trust in it. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean you can. And I think I think many of the churches, if you if you look at what a lot of the churches are doing today, 
They're talking about engaging the culture, engaging the culture, engaging the culture with this, with that, with all these different things. The only thing they're not talking about is spreading the gospel, which is what we are called to do. The churches themselves feel like they have they have pushed back or separated their religion from the world so much that now things have just gotten completely out of hand and now they now what what are they going to do they're going to swing the pendulum to the other way and think that they need to fully engage the culture all the time rather than trying to work for souls which is which is actually what we are called to do and that that in and of itself will have its own transforming characteristics on nations because righteousness exalteth a nation but sin is a reproach to any people you can read that in proverbs but that was a, a bit of a tangent there but i just want to i just want to put things in perspective uh not only for you but but for myself <laughs> to remind myself that you know god has that hand on on the wheel within the wheel and although things look chaotic, they look like confusion. The the future looks scary in many senses. You, you just it's it's heartbreaking to see the indifference of people, uh, the ignorance of people, and not knowing what communism is, what socialism is, and just especially my generation, like a lot of people want it. Um, and then you have the other side of it where people are very very angry, and it's been it's been a very negative year so far as far as uh, talking with other people. So we got to make sure that, that we don't fall into that negative trap because how are we going to be witnesses for others if we do? So it, it's good for us to cling to Christ in, in times like these. But in verse 7, as it goes on, it says, For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So, it says the hour of his judgment is come. So it says hour there, the hour of his judgment. So that's a time period, right? So it's pointing to a time period. And it says the hour of his judgment is come. Not will come, not did come, not has come, but is come. So that at the hour of his judgment is come. So we have a time period that is associated with a judgment time. So what, we're, what we would be looking for, therefore, in prophecy would be a time prophecy that is associated with judgment. Now, is there is there any time prophecies associated with judgment? I'm actually going to work this one maybe in a little bit different way than you've seen before. If you look at the word judgment, which in the Strong's Concordance is 2920, 2920. It's called crisis. It looks like crisis, K-R-I-S-I-S -I -I with a K instead of a C, but it's pronounced crisis. And it says this, judgment, damnation, accusation, condemnation, a separating, sundering, separation, a trial, a contest, selection, judgment, Opinion or decision given concerning anything, especially concerning justice and injustice, right or wrong. Sentence of condemnation, damnatory judgment, condemnation or punishment. 
the College of Judges, a tribunal of seven men in the several cities of Palestine, as distinguished from the Sanhedrin, which had its seat at Jerusalem, and right or justice. So there's a lot of information there. So you got to ask yourself, okay, the hour of his judgment has come. The answers that are in Revelation, the answers to Revelation are throughout the Bible. So is there any examples in the Bible that point to a judgment time, a selection time, a sundering, a, a dividing of the people? Well, there, there actually is an object lesson that points to when God would make judgment upon his people. And that time frame was actually one of the feast days. It's right there in the sanctuary. A beautiful, beautiful thing. By the way, uh, just a, a little rule of thumb. Well, I don't know if I'd call it a rule of thumb, but a, a good, a good a food for thought, if nothing else. Almost everything that I have found in the scriptures, when I want the, the clearest understanding of what it is, I go to the sanctuary. The, the sanctuary system and everything that was a part of it, whether it's the furniture or the actual festivals and feast days or the offerings themselves, it all gives the perfect, clear understanding. So the Bible's talking about a time period of prophecy when judgment would come. And the object lesson that we have in Scripture for, for a judgment time upon God's people is called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a festival once a year when it was actually the the final festival for the the ceremonial uh, sanctuary so it was like the end of that what you would call year of the ministerial year there were seven months of the ministerial year and then seven months of the regular year in the hebrew calendar i know that equals 14 but actually the 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 first month and the last month would always overlap, so it would actually be six. So the first day, the first or the first part of the year would coincide with the, the beginning of the last month. So it actually ended up being twelve months. But anyway, if you look up what took place on the Day of Atonement, you can go to Leviticus chapter sixteen. And I'm just gonna pick and choose a, a couple of sections out of here. Uh, from Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about exactly what took place. It says, He shall take of the congregation, this is verse 5, He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering, and shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. The Lord shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which lot on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And then if you skip down to verse 15, it says, Then he shall kill the goat for a sin offering, that is for the people, 
and that represents Jesus Christ who died for the people. It says, and bring his blood within the veil and do that which blood he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. So remember, this is the mercy seat. So this would be the yearly sacrifice once a year. The blood was always sprinkled upon the veil, meaning that the sin was transferred into the sanctuary. Where this time the sin is being is being brought right before to the mercy seat to make a final atonement. It says in verse 16, and he shall make an atonement for the holy, for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of all their transgressions and all their sins, so he shall do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So in verse 16, it's that sin was actually transferred to the sanctuary in particular and that and that it was unclean and had to have an atonement made for it and that atonement was made once a year so in other words when people were offering their sin offerings throughout the year the sin was in part transferred to the priests by some of them ate part of the the sin offering also, the sin was transferred into the sanctuary through the sprinkled blood. And this is how atonement was made for the people throughout the year. However, on the Day of Atonement, or as some call it, the Day of Judgment, the Jews will call Yom Kippur um, and things associated with around this festival as the Day of Judgment. And so there was uncleanness in the sanctuary itself or in the temple depending on what time frame you are in and that sin was atoned for and cleansed from the sanctuary once a year now if you read hebrews hebrews chapter 8 and hebrews chapter 9 in particular you learn that the sanctuary or tabernacle here on earth was symbolic for the true tabernacle that was made without hands in heaven the true temple that was in heaven which had a holy place and also had a most holy place so if we go on to the prophetic end of this spectrum here and we travel down to daniel daniel chapter 8 we learn about a time prophecy which is associated with the cleansing of the sanctuary and the cleansing of the sanctuary is the day of atonement which would conform to the hour of his judgment so the hour of his judgment is associated with the day, the the festival day which is the day of atonement and the day of atonement they had to make an atonement for the sanctuary because sin had been transferred there all year and in daniel chapter 8 it talks about cleansing the sanctuary so they're all talking about the same thing uh, they're just saying it in different ways again line upon line precept upon precept here a little and there a little so let's take a look at what this verse actually says this is daniel chapter 8 and I actually want to start just to give a little bit of context. I want to I want to uh, start from verse twelve, which is actually verses that are about the papacy and his rule. It says, "And a host was given him against the daily, by reason of transgression, 
and it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. And then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Some say also justified, but cleansed. The sanctuary was to be cleansed after this twenty-three hundred day prophecy. Now, if you take the Protestant view, which you can find in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, and Numbers chapter 32, verse 14, a day in Bible prophecy equals an actual year. So this 2300-day prophecy, it's not referring to the sanctuary here on earth. It's referring to the sanctuary in heaven, and it's not 2300 days. It's 2,300 years. And where do we get the starting point for this? Actually, you get it in the very next chapter. In Daniel chapter 9, when Gabriel is explaining the vision to, to Daniel, which he never got a chance to fully explain, he starts in verse... 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, these prophecies pertain to the Messiah. In verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. So now we have our starting date because this, uh, when it says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, it means 70 weeks, which are 490 years, are cut off from this prophecy. The, the term there for determined is also used as cut off. So it's part of this 20, it's the beginning part of this 2300 year prophecy. So the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublous times. Well, the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem came from the Persian king Artaxerxes in 457 BC. And you can actually you can actually confirm these dates through the Babylonian dating system, the Babylonian texts, and through the Greek Olympiad dates. 457 BC was when Artaxerxes gave gave the the order to restore and build not only the temple which is what Cyrus talked about and not only Jerusalem in a general sense which work the work for it was stopped it, it was halted but in this particular decree um, which the Bible records in Ezra chapter 7 
and for time's sake, I'm not necessarily going to go there, but you can read about it in Ezra chapter 7. 457 BC, Artaxerxes gave, gave this command, and he also gave them tax exemption and autonomy. He allowed them to have their own laws and to execute their own judgments. So when it says in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, know therefore and understand that the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, not only to build it, but also to restore it, to give it its autonomy again and to give it um tax exemption to give it to give it authority again as a power to execute its own laws and that's what artaxerxes did and that's why that is the date that we go with now if you add 2300 years to 457 bc you come up to the date 1844 in particular the autumn of 1844 And that happens to be what the Millerite movement uh, was calling the, the cleansing of the sanctuary. They thought it was the Lord was to return and cleanse the earth by fire. So 1844. So that's what this, this message is talking about in Revelation chapter 14. This is the last message to the world. And think about how loving God is. And how patient he is that he's been giving this message or we've supposed to be giving this message for the last 150 plus years so for the hour of his judgment is come in 1844 Jesus did not come but the cleansing of the sanctuary took place or began to take place in other words Jesus entered from the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary into the most holy, into the yearly service, the yearly, what, what used to be called the yearly service. From the daily to the yearly, in 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place and judgment began. Judgment began with Abel. Why Abel and not Adam first? Because Abel's case was closed before Adam's. Abel was the first to die. Abel was the first case to be finished. So it started with Abel and it's gone through all the individuals throughout all time that have been that have been dead that have uh, claimed to be covered by the blood of the lamb. All right, right up into today and soon will come the time of the judgment of the living. And when that time comes, we will have the mark of the beast in our midst. Remember, 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 folks, that everything pivots off of the first angel's message. The other two messages pivot off the first angel's message. So something's being talked about in the first angel's message. The warnings against rejecting that message are pointing you back to the first angel's message. Now, it also says, and we're a little bit over time, but I just want to get through this real quickly. It says, for the hour of his judgment is come. So 1844, Jesus enters the most holy place. Then it says, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. 
So this is about worship. This is a worship issue. Remember, it says that those who receive the mark of the beast worship the beast and his image. So worship is the main issue. Now, when do we worship? How do we worship? We worship, you know, once a week uh, when we go to church, right? I mean, that's when we do it in an official sense. Yes, we can do it every day, but we do it in an official sense once a week. So that now that should be something that clicks into your mind right there. When do we worship? How do we worship? These things are somehow directly linked with this judgment. It says, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now do this. That's what it's saying. So worship. We have to have correct worship. We have to worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and, and John, and the Gospel of John says that God is looking. Jesus' own mouth says it. God is looking for people that will worship him in this way, that will worship him in spirit and in truth, not just not just in a feeling sense, not just in a euphoric sense because of the music, but actually truly heartfelt loving God, but still not willing to compromise one iota of his truth. That's true worship. So those things keep those things in your mind as we, we look at him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. What does that point to? The creation. Okay, let's go back to the creation. Let's go back to the creation. Exodus chapter 1 talks about all the different days and what he created. And at the end of this creation, even after he created man, it says in chapter 2, Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. So, the Sabbath becomes a very important part of this whole issue surrounding the judgment. Let's go to Exodus and look at the Sabbath commandment real quickly. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It sounds almost verbatim to the warnings that are being given in Revelation chapter 14. The way the Sabbath is being described. You know, it's in Revelation chapter 14, it says, Worship him who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 20, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And rested the seventh day. So judgment or selection or atonement or the final decision of each and in each individual's life has to do with proper worship and particularly the Sabbath commandment. Which day is the seventh day? Look on your calendar. You tell me.
That is the day, friend, that we are to honor God. And if we aren't keeping that day, we might end up, as the saying that many people use nowadays, we might end up on the wrong side of history if we are not worshiping, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And if we are not, we are not honoring his Sabbath, which, as we can see now, has a direct link with this 2300-year hour of his judgment and last day message for the world. Next time, we're going to take a look at the second angel's message and how it pivots off of the first angel's message. Because I'll say again, everything, everything has to do with the first angel's message. The other two messages are warnings about the rejection of those messages. So every aspect of this is extremely, extremely important and, and almost can't be understated. So folks, if you're not keeping the Sabbath, I highly suggest that you take a deeper look into it and, and study it out and just be sure, just be sure about what you believe. Let every person be persuaded in their own minds. I'm Cody Mori, and you've been listening to Truth Triumphant Radio. God bless.